0: You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. In turn to to the Gospel of John in chapter 6, we find ourselves in in John chapter 6. We've been there for uh, quite a while. We've seen Jesus feed the 5,000. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him try to get away from a crowd, but the crowd uh, follows him. And then we have what is called uh, the Bread of Life discourse, where Jesus is preaching to these people that have followed him and I, and I want to take just a, a little bit of time this morning and read that discourse up until the place we are now because we've we've taken uh, several sections of this discourse and, and looked at each section uh, differently but I want to see the the whole context of, of where we are on this point so we're going to pick up in verse 22. And just for your your reference, we're going to focus our attention on verses 52 through 59 today. So, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered that boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. The other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? The fathers they ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread that God, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that has come from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that that comes from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, who so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that has come down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, but whoever feeds on this bread. Will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. What a what an amazing section of scripture. And as you hear it read all together, you, you probably have catched these these Parts that, that Jesus is emphasizing over and over and over. In, in each one of these sections, you hear Jesus say things like, and I will raise him up the last day. And everything that Jesus is saying here, whether he's talking about uh, his own flesh that they must eat and drink or him being the bread of life, everything is pointing uh, to himself. Uh, you, you notice these things, I, I think when you, when you read it all together and, and there's, there's so much uh, context here. Now, as we uh, come to to verses um, 52 through 59, you you see uh, things start uh, shifting, right? Uh, They've already been grumbling uh, because Jesus said he has come down from from heaven. This has caused uh, some dispute amongst the the multitudes uh, of people. Uh, Now Jesus is talking about giving his own flesh to eat, and this seems to, to really throw them for a loop. So the the question really before us is, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Now, it is a historical fact that during the early years of the Christian faith, the church was persecuted vigorously by the Roman government. Now, of course, the, the Roman government, they gave reasons for doing what they were doing. They, they would kill all of these Christians, but they, they gave reasons for why they were doing it. They didn't want to seem like uh, the killing of, of Christians was unjustified. So what the Romans did is gave reasons, and they basically gave three reasons for persecuting Christians. Uh, the first was atheism. The second was incest. And the third was cannibalism. And you might think, man, early Christians were kind of messed up. Um, But but that isn't the case. It was was pure uh, political propaganda, and that's how the propaganda machine works. We might uh, not have persecution like uh, this today, uh, here anyway, but we do see the power of propaganda, don't we? One doesn't have to look uh, too far in our own country to see uh, the power of propaganda. When uh, you think of the, the COVID-19 and specifically the vaccine and the, the, the mandate push, there was a lot of propaganda there. Whether you agree with uh, that decision or not, you, you have to admit that there's so much propaganda that was coming out that it was hard to know uh, what and who to believe. Even more uh, recent, though, is this war that's being waged in Ukraine. Uh, of course, uh, there's there's tremendous amounts of propaganda being uh, spewed from both sides. I heard a number from the uh, Ukrainian military the other day of, of how many Russian soldiers they have been killed had had been killed, and the number was absolutely uh, astounding. And then the, the commentator said, "But this is grossly exaggerated." But uh, even when you use a conservative number, the the number was. Still very, very high, but uh, this is this is propaganda for for the cause, but the ukrainians aren 't the only ones using propaganda, of course the, the Russians are, and they 're the ones that actually have to justify this war back home, so they 're saying. Um, Things like uh, these people that they' were warring against are, are Nazis and extremists. This isn't a war, it's a military operation. The, the fact fake news is being cracked down upon. What uh, These other people that are against this operation are unpatriotic and need to be dealt with. The, the point is, when a country like Russia or the Roman government is doing something like this, they justify their actions to people. They justify it poorly, but that is what they're doing. So uh, this is what the the Romans did. They they are justifying their their treatment of of Christians by saying, uh, basically, these people, they're, they're atheists, they're involved in incest, and they're involved in cannibalism, and we can't have this in our world, so let's rid the world of it. So why would they say these things? Well, they accused Christians of atheism because Christians said openly, there is no God but Yahweh. They are atheists because they did not believe in the pantheon of Roman gods. We don't believe in the Roman gods. We don't believe in them. We believe there is one God, and this is Yahweh. Christians uh, often referred to themselves as uh, one family in Christ. It is because of Christ. They are one family. They, they used the, the terms brother and, and sister uh, to, to, to refer to one another. This was uh, commonplace in the early uh, Christian community. Even husbands and wives would uh, refer to one another as, as sister or, or brother in Christ. Talking about the, the relationship that they have uh, in Christ. And this is where the charge of, of incest would come. Of course... This is all very ridiculous. The terms brother and sister have to do with one's relationship to one another through Christ Jesus, not some scandalous relationship. Cannibalism, you probably already uh, figured this out, but it had to do with the the Lord's Supper. Those on the outside would hear uh, rumors of the church gathering to partake of the body and blood of Christ Jesus. To me, this actually probably has the most merit. That the Lord's Supper wasn't something that all people were invited to. And one can see how rumors could start here. That they're, they're actually eating flesh and blood and they're, and they're saying that it, that it is pointing to, to Jesus. This is, this is gross. This isn't right. But it comes from a, a, obviously a great misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper isn't about eating flesh. It was about faith. It was about trusting and believing in what Christ had done for them. It was about looking back on the death of Christ. It was a memorial, a a feast that that celebrated his death and the victory over sin. Of course, in our text this morning, Jesus, and I'm going to say this right up front, but I'll, I'll talk more about it later, but Jesus isn't making a reference to the Lord's Supper. It's not pointing toward the communion table. But he's making a reference to faith. Just the, the same here. One can sort of see why the Jews grumbled when he said, and the bread that I will give you for the life of the world is my flesh. They, they disputed amongst themselves. What does this mean? There was a, a lot of grumbling. Jesus says that, I mean, this grumbling, it was actually continuing from grumbling that had already been taking place. Jesus had said that he had come down from heaven. Now he is saying. Uh, now they're saying, "How is this man uh, going to give us his flesh to eat?" Now, at this point, I find it interesting that Don Carson says that it's a little bit difficult to believe that these Jews could not see through uh, Jesus' words at this point to some uh, metaphorical meaning. Uh, Don Carson suggests that they were actually ridiculing Jesus here that Jesus said this and they were, just, they were just poking fun at him they were mocking him but whatever they, the case is the fact that there uh, was some spiritual meaning behind Jesus' words uh, was lost on them I bring up a, a reference to the Lord's Supper here because there is a, a commonality both the, the bread and the juice and the Lord's Supper event and here symbolize uh, the body and blood of Jesus And you, of course, you eat that. Jesus said uh, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, this is my body. And the bread and the juice symbolize his body, his blood. We take it in. Some would go further than this, right? The, The Catholics and the Lutherans would view the Lord's Supper differently than we do when it comes to the presence of Christ in the elements. The Catholic doctrine is called transubstantiation, and they would say that when the priest blesses the the elements, that these elements actually change into the body and blood of Christ Jesus, although they look and taste like bread and wine. That sounds a bit more like cannibalism. Our text seems to make a little bit more sense sacramentally, if one takes that view. If it was talking about the Lord's Supper, uh, the Lutherans don't go quite as far as Catholics. They, their view is consubstantiation. Uh, these would say that Jesus is actually present in, around, and through the elements. Uh, so it's a little bit different. They don't actually change, but Jesus is physically present in, around, and through them. We would see the we would see the elements as being more symbolic, pointing to a, a greater reality as signs. Um, but we would think of Christ as being spiritually present during the lord 's table meal and in any case, is what Jesus saying here and I think this is the question is what Jesus is saying here in John chapter six in these verses is it pointing our attention in any way to the lord 's table i 've already said i don 't think so, but let me give you reasons why i don 't think that these verses should be seen as as pointing to it sacramentally at all. Uh, First, I want you to notice that both verse uh, 54 and verse 40, I want you to notice how close these verses are. I've already said that you probably picked up some some commonality as we read through the, the large portion of together, but I want you to notice uh, specifically 54 and, and 40. This should be a, a guide and an interpretation. Clear uh, passages help, under, help us understand passages that are less clear. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. Then verse 40: For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So, how do you get eternal life? You believe on him. What does it mean to eat the flesh and drink the blood? To believe on him. And what happens? He will raise you up the last day. He's saying exactly the same thing in a different way. What Jesus has said plainly in verse 40 is less plain in verse 54. But nevertheless, he is saying exactly the same thing. Jesus has been referring to himself as the bread of life. And all of that entails, we we talked about that before, it makes sense that he would use the language of eating. It's pretty straightforward that Jesus is using a a metaphor of eating and drinking to refer to belief or faith in himself, in the Son. Secondly, notice the language in verses 53 and 54. The language here is so clear that if one were to take this as a reference to the Lord's Supper, one would also have to assume that the Lord's Supper is necessary for eternal life, which would contradict verse 40 then. So unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you then whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If this is talking about the Lord's Supper, then the Lord's Supper is necessary for salvation, and you can be saved by taking part of that. And that is certainly not what is said here, because it contradicts the, the same passage that it's in. Third, the interpretation of, of this being a reference to the Lord's Table uh, seems to be uh, far too literal when we go down and look at Jesus' words uh, in verse 63. 63 seems to, to help us a little bit with the, uh, how literal we're supposed to take this. Uh, he says here, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. It seems to, to point out that Jesus is using a metaphor to point to a spiritual reality. At this point, we recognize uh, this isn't a reference to the Lord's table. It's not a reference to the Lord's Supper. We can see uh, another important point here. Let me see if I can just illustrate this a little bit before I, uh, before we talk about it too much. The, the Book of Order for the Presbyterian Church uh, USA contained... Uh, before it was updated, I I believe, it had vows that ministers would take in their ordination. So as ministers were ordained, they would take certain vows, and part of those vows would, would read the peace, purity, and unity of the church, pointing to the fact that all who became ministers in the church agreed to encourage these things in their lives and in the lives of their congregation. They promised to study these points. They promised to advance them, the the peace, the purity, the unity in the life of the church. This is what the minister is supposed to do. And it sounds really good, but the difficulty here is when these things are not always possible. It's not always possible to promote peace and purity of the church at the same time. You could have peace, for instance, but not have purity. You could have purity in the church, but not have peace and unity. There are many, and I would suggest even in our own denomination, that see this tension. And the reason is that truth will always have those hostile to it, and pure doctrine will always be opposed. One commentator said it this way, I would go so far as to affirm as a rule of Christian experience that strong teaching of strong doctrine will inevitably produce discord in some quarter. There is a a temptation, especially when with a a group who does not always see things the same way with those who know there will be some disagreement to then tone down the, the teaching to make it more palatable for the sake of peace. But think about what's happening there. When we do that, just take the, the doctrine of the atonement, for instance. In, in particular, uh, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of, of Christ, and that Christ took our place, and that the, the wrath of God that was due us for our sins was poured on Jesus in our place. It, it's such a crucial doctrine, such a, an important place in the, in the scope of the gospel. But what if we are in a, a large group that doesn't all agree on that? Now, on one hand, we desire peace and unity with our brothers and sisters. So do we take the doctrine and we change it to highlight things to make it more palatable? Do we water it down so that we can maintain unity? I would suggest here that Jesus did the opposite of that. Jesus had already said that he had come from heaven. He was the bread of life, the true bread, meaning that He was the bread from heaven that manna in the wilderness pointed to. And and all of this caused a great grumbling. How could Jesus come from heaven? We know him. He's Joseph and Mary's boy. How could he be from heaven? Jesus then turns and says, This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the world. Now when Jesus said this, the people began to dispute and grumble and disagree among themselves even more. It bothered them. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they said. What did Jesus do? Did he make his teaching more palatable so that people would not be offended by what he said? Didn't Jesus want peace? Why would he repeat his claim, but do so even stronger? Didn't Jesus know that he was running the risk of causing great division? Such division that this whole crowd of people might actually just walk away? Couldn't what Jesus did here be seen as divisive since he knew that this wouldn't ease the grumbling spirit of his hearers? Now, when we start thinking about this in our own day in relation to this, we notice that Jesus didn't tone down his teaching. In fact, he did the opposite. He made his teaching even more difficult. But let me say this. We are not Jesus, This isn't an excuse to be divisive for the sake of causing division. Jesus had special insight into the, the truth. He had special insight into the hearts of his hearers that we could never have. Therefore, when we are faced with these moments, like the area of the atonement that I mentioned earlier, these situations must be dealt with with humility and meekness. But don't misunderstand. Humility doesn't mean making the truth more Palatable. It doesn't mean watering down the truth. Humility doesn't mean that we give on issues concerning the gospel. Humility is the, the recognition that this, in this situation that we are in, we find ourselves under the authority of God, and this is His truth. And we ought to defend it how He would want us to defend it. There's a time to keep silent. There's a time to speak. And we ought to do well to know the difference. There's a way to speak that is helpful. And there's a way to speak that is very unhelpful. We need humility, but we also need courage. The two are not uh, mutually exclusive. I thought that Albert Moeller really nailed this the other day when he was uh, in the briefing, when he was talking about uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky. Um, He noted that um, at the end of his broadcast that uh, we, we notice courage when we see it. And the whole world has taken note of this man's courage in the face of difficulty. Just listen to what he said. I mean, quote, he said, Demonstrations of courage are all too rare in the world today. And so when you see it, even a vestige of courage, much less than an open and continuing display of courage, our attention is drawn to it. Precisely because it is so rare. He says there'll be much more for us to consider about Russia and Ukraine. And of course, it's a matter of life and death for so many in Ukraine right now. But we also have to understand that courage is required of every single human being in some context of life. And in our fallen, complex, confusing, rebellious world today, courage sometimes comes down to knowing the difference between male and female, knowing that dif- knowing that difference between the truth in a lie, and summoning the courage to say so." I think, he, I think he hits the, the nail on the head. There is courage that is required of all of us, and it isn't only knowing what is right and wrong, but it's, it's having the courage to speak up when it's right to speak up. It's not saying silent when somebody needs to say something. So we need uh, humility and we need courage. We need both of those things in the face of these kinds of issues. So we recognize that in these situations, we're going to have to give an account before God one day and we desire to to honor him. Peace at the cost of doctrinal integrity does not honor God. The fact is, genuine peace concerns truth in doctrine. Genuine unity is unity in the truth, not at the sake of truth. It seems like there are a lot of caveats here, like one might say, Well, Pastor, are you telling us that to have true unity, we have to agree with one another on everything? Well, if that were the case, we would have unity with no one besides ourselves. But there are people that are like this. They make their views the test of Christian unity. Either you agree with me on everything or you don't. And at the moment we differ, you're gone. Again, this all takes humility. Uh, there are some things, things that pertain to the gospel, the atonement, things that are about the created order of things, sin, hell, the trinity, the deity and humanity of Christ Jesus. These things, for example, uh, cannot be given on. They're first tier issues, if you will. Uh, Picture a triangle with three sections. Uh, The bottom section is the the foundational section. And uh, it is where all of these really gospel-centered, important issues are. They're, they're the foundation. Uh, we all must have the same foundation or there is no unity. Does that make sense? You, you can't have a, a different foundation. How can one have Christian unity when we disagree on the foundation? When one believes that Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, when one doesn't believe that Jesus bore the wrath of those who would believe on him, What real unity do we have? We don't have true unity. If there's no foundation, there's no real unity. Some might object here and say, well, what we need to do is we need to find those foundational issues that we do agree on. We need to focus on the positives and not focus on the negatives. We might disagree on the atonement, but we can still find agreement on the deity of Jesus, for instance. I'm sure that Jesus could have had points of agreement with the Pharisees, but he didn't approach life with them that way. He called them sons of hell, whitewashed tombs. Paul says that those who are preaching another gospel by adding works of the law to it are accursed. He doesn't find areas of agreement. In fact, there were lots of areas of agreement To deny the substitutional nature of the atonement is a denial of the gospel by taking a key element away from it. When we start subtracting from the gospel to make it play better in a different environment or whatever the case is, then it really isn't the gospel and there's not unity. Paul makes it very clear in Galatians 1. You're just adding a little bit to the gospel, but adding a little bit to the gospel makes it a false gospel And therefore, these ought to be accursed. So, moving on here. Jesus is not speaking in this text of the Lord's Supper. He isn't watering down the truth in any respect for some false sense of peace and unity, since genuine unity comes from agreement in the gospel. So the question remains here, what is Jesus talking about in these verses? Or to ask that question a little bit differently. uh, What does it mean to feed on Jesus? And the answer is found in what Christ has been saying all along. He said that people must believe in him. He he said this over and over. We've seen this. uh, We've seen these words in verse 29. The work of God is that you believe in Him who He has sent. In verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I love verse 35, whoever comes, these must come. Whoever comes. In verse 40, these that look at Him, In verse 45, they must listen and learn from him. All of these terms refer to what we call as faith. These terms here in our our text are are no different. Eating and drinking, these terms are speaking of faith as as well as the fact that these things are are stressing the, the commitment and reliance that is involved in true saving faith. I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus is talking about faith in terms of eating and drinking in Jesus. In other words, Jesus should be as real to to you. Our faith should be as real to you and I as food is. One commentator says it this way. Don't think of me as blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and useful than those, the unfortunate thing is that for many people he is much less. When it comes to our faith in Christ Jesus, the question is, is he as real and useful as food is? Do we rely on him like we rely on food? Is, is it that real? Do we see it as that much of a, a necessity? That He's our, our sustenance. We need life giving. For the Christian, their faith in, in Christ is, is life giving food. It's where we find nourishment. Perhaps think about it this way a little bit differently. Uh, think of a bride before her wedding. I see a couple guys in here that are thinking about getting married. Um, (laughs) But think about a bride before a marriage. She has promised herself to her husband before uh, the ceremony that the bride can do what she wants before the ceremony, though. In fact, if the wedding is scheduled for 4 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, at 3.58, she can call the whole thing off and say, I've made a terrible mistake. But once the ceremony starts and she speaks her vows on the basis of those vows she is pronounced to be the wife of her husband and she is no longer her own she becomes her husband's and her husband becomes hers now think about the bridegroom of the church you and i are the bride of christ he is the bridegroom he is The one who has courted us. And as we have seen in this passage, that courting started before the foundation of the earth. We didn't choose him. He chose us. In fact, we could say that he pronounced those vows to us, first of all, a long time ago, before the foundation of the earth. Jesus promised before the foundation of the earth There was a covenant that these would be his in sickness and in health, in richer and poorer, in joy and sorrow. That was his covenant. I'm going to take and I'm going to draw these to myself. This is my covenant. The the ones that I started a good work in before the foundation of the world. These ones I'm going to draw to myself. They're going to be mine in rich and poor, sicker in health, uh, joy, sorrow, whatever the case is, they are mine. And then, in time, there is a moment in which the bride sees all that the bridegroom has done for her, looks into the loving eyes of the bridegroom, so greatly loved her from all of eternity, and repeats that vow back to them. Now, we need to understand that in the case of the church, There was something that happened between Christ's vow to us and our repetition of the vow to him, and that was Jesus. He comes, he lives a a perfect life, he then goes to the cross, pays the infinite price for our sin, purchasing our freedom from sin and guilt and shame, and as we come to him, it is on the basis of his sacrifice. How is his love demonstrated for us? His love for us existed before time began. But how is his love demonstrated? It's demonstrated to just at the right time, when we were still sinners, that he died for us. It is on the basis of his sacrifice that we take Jesus to be our husband, as it were. If the wedding here is a picture of this eternal reality, it must make sense that faith in Christ involves tremendous commitment. It is a repetition of the vow that was made to us. It is something where we continually fall short. It's rather amazing to the believer... How much we can look at what Christ has done for us. How much he, we know how he wants us to obey and to be obedient. How we can read in the scriptures what the, what the law commands in us. But then over and over we fall short. We fall into sin. We fall short of the vow that we have made to him. But yet he is still faithful to us. Because his faithfulness to us does not depend on our ability to keep the vow. But it depends on Christ's obedience on our behalf. For the Christian, there is a great amazement when it comes to the faithfulness of God and our unfaithfulness in contrast. This always directs the believer back to Christ. You see, we are committed to Christ. This is what faith is. It isn't a, an initial commitment or initial avow. It isn't just some prayer that you pray and you mean it. And then you're determined to, to keep it on your own. It's, it's feeding on Him continually. It's coming to Him for instruction in the Word. It is a dependence on Him to, to live the Christian life. It's coming back to Him when we've set it on our own and we've failed miserably. It's commitment. I want you to see that there is a a tremendous invitation here that we must not miss. Right? There's a a question. Do you recognize what Christ has done for you? That before the foundation of the world, he set his gaze on you, and then in due time, he came and lived the the perfect life that you couldn't. He died the death that you deserved, and because of, of your sin... You deserved to live in eternity apart from him, but instead he died for you. He demonstrated his love. He said his vow in essence. And the invitation is to repeat it. To come to him in faith. To respond to, to him and say, yes, I, I see what you've done. I've seen your, your faithfulness to me. I've seen what you've done for me. And now I'm committed to you. And the question is, is will you come to Him in faith? Will you believe and commit yourself to Christ? Let me just point one more thing out here from this that I think is going to help us understand this. I want you to notice a word in verse 56. Let me just read that verse. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood does what? Abides in me and I in him. It's like uh, if you're familiar with the gospel of John it's like John 15 right? Notice that the word abides there. This is the the Greek word meno it it means to uh, remain or to abide in. It's a crucial word for uh, John. It it defines the the relationship between uh, members of the Trinity For instance, in in John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, we read this. And John bore witness. I, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained. That's the word. It remained on Him. That says something, doesn't it? The Spirit abided on Christ. It remained on Him. John chapter 14, verse 10 do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father. Or do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells—that's the word—dwells in me, does His works. Father remains in Him. It says something of their relationship. It defines it. The next chapter, 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my life just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. You see that something of the relationship between the two. You also see in this word the relationship between believers and Christ. There's an abiding there in John chapter 5 verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So the ones that believe have what? God's word abiding in them. In chapter 8, verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So I mean, a small portion of these scriptures because I want you to see this this mutual indwelling, this reciprocal uh, relationship, a a mutual uh, abiding. I and him, He and me, now note that this relationship, though, isn't precisely reciprocal. that the believer uh, remains in Christ Jesus. This means that they are identified with Jesus. They continue as a Christian, they continue in, in faith, and because of this, their lives are transformed. Jesus remains in the believer. He identifies himself with the believer. Therefore they are transformed. This doesn't make one God. It's not um, what some have called a, a little God uh, theology that Christ, in dwelling in us, makes us divine. That's, that's not what this is saying at all. But, it, but what it is saying is that the one with whom Christ abides or remains in takes on his characteristics, they're transformed. Right? This, has been, this was talked about in adult Sunday school this morning. Transformed. They're, they're, it would be foolish, though, to flip this around and say that Christ takes on our characteristics because we are united with him. That notion is absurd. But to say it simply, Jesus is the source of life. We cling to Him. We remain in Him because it is Him in which we, we feed on Him. We we abide in Him. However you want to put it, we have faith in Him, and because of that faith, because of that abiding, we are then transformed. In other words, to say it differently, and this is where John 15 comes in, we bear fruit. You're transformed because of your relationship with him. This is all faith. This is what it means to have faith in Christ. R.C. Sproul says this of bearing fruit. He says, the central emphasis on fruit in the New Testament has to do with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of a changed life. A changed character. A character that is strengthened and nurtured by the source of holiness. Christ himself. Where does a transformed life come from? By pulling your own self up by your own bootstraps? No. By abiding in Christ? By faith in Christ Jesus. Now, understand, abiding means to remain, to dwell, to to continue, or to endure with. The idea is remaining close, drawing nourishment from. The the more that is done, the more fruit one bears. I I don't want to be misunderstood, though. Fruit is important, but it isn't the goal. So many people make fruit the goal. It's not the goal. The goal is Christ. Christ is the goal. He is the source of nourishment. The source of nourishment, the source of strength. He's the goal. Drawn near to the source of life, what happens? You grow. You eat bread, the bread of life, you grow. The source is Him. When one draws near to the stream, one grows. We read Isaiah the beginning. You know, come, drink. What happens when you drink? Transformation. We must not get the the cart before the horse. That there are too many people worried about fruit and forget to abide. Abiding for them becomes more about law and moralistic endeavors to produce what they think is fruit. Again, R.C. Sproul says it this way, quote, quote, The closer we stay to Christ, the more fruit we bear. The more we wander from the center and neglect the means of grace that he has given us to use the less fruit we produce. Let me just close with this. There's a story of a man, I I don't know if it's true, but it makes the point. This man, uh, like many others probably, he joined a a church, but he never attended worship services. However, he he came to the church picnic, and uh, the pastor spoke to him at the picnic and said, I haven't seen you in church lately. And the the fellow said, yeah, that's true. I've learned that I don't really need church to be a, a Christian I can commune with God on my own. I can do things my own way. I I don't need to be part of a a worshiping community on Sunday morning. The pastor said, I understand what you're saying. And then he casually walked over to a a charcoal grill where hamburgers were sizzling. And using some tongs, he removed one of the white hot coals uh, from the rest of them and put it over to the side of the grill. He chatted with the, the, the guy for a few more minutes and then said, look at the coal. A, a few moments ago, the coal was radiant in its heat and in its warmth. It was useful for uh, the grilling of these burgers, the, the purpose that it had, uh, the purpose that it was given. But then it was removed and it was set by itself. It has grown cold and become worthless for the task that it was created to do. Some might say, well, that's kind of a funny story because the Bible says that we're to abide in Christ, not the church. But the fact is, the more we neglect the means of grace that God has given us, the less fruit we will produce. The, The means of grace are that which God has appointed in the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit works in our lives to enable believers to obtain the benefits of redemption. How do you obtain the benefits of Christ? Through the ordained means of grace. It's the the method uh, in which we uh, feed upon Christ. And the question is, is are you abiding in Christ like the coal feeds on others or are you distant, neglecting the means of grace, neglecting the church, the word, prayer? My friends, we neglect those things more than we would like if we're honest. We're not perfect people. In fact, If we were graded on this, we would always be subpar. Thank goodness for Christ. We look to Christ, we find strength in Christ, we find forgiveness in Christ. We look to the cross and we recognize, as we will see in John 15, that we can do nothing apart from Christ. So we cling to him, we abide in him, and as we abide in him, we're transformed by him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your goodness to us. That. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.